Welcome or welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jade. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. It's very much appreciated, and I hope that you're having a good day, good night, good evening, whatever time that you're listening to this. Last week, we talked about the murder of Dr. Daryl Satorius, and this week, we're going to be talking about the Grony family murders. The Life and Crimes of Joseph Duncan III and Shasta Groney. I do want to mention before we start that this case deals with topics of child molestation and crimes against children, which is a topic that is painful to discuss and hear stories about. So if you do not want to listen, I can completely understand. So I just wanted to clear that because wasn't the easiest to um, research. So without further ado, let's get started. Joseph Edward Duncan III was born on February 25th, 1963. Now there are different speculations as to where he's born. I mean, it's not the most important thing in the world, but it was reported that it's either in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Washington State, or someplace else. Joseph's parents are Joseph Edward Duncan Jr. and Lillian Duncan. He had three older sisters and one younger brother. Joseph was from a military family, so they would move pretty often. Joseph Duncan, the father, retired from the army, and the family settled in Tacoma, Washington. Joseph would say that as a child he was abused, but his younger brother would dispute that claim. Joseph's parents got a divorce in 1979 when Joseph was 16 years old. His three older sisters had moved out, leaving Joseph and his younger brother, as well as his mom. Joseph Duncan attended Lakes High School, but didn't graduate. Sherry Cox, Joseph's sister, would later in court say that they were frequently beaten by their mother while she would talk about how men are worthless. Sherry described her mother as crazy. She talked about why Joseph didn't fight back when his mom was beating him, saying, quote, When she was beating on you, it was worse. In his case, he just took what she gave and kind of whimpered off into his bedroom. End quote. Bruce Duncan, the younger brother, said that he was never abused, nor does he remember anyone in, in the house being abused. He described their childhood as a typical childhood. They would go to church, and the brothers were in Boy Scouts. There is also another story as to what Joseph's childhood was like. He said that there was incest, and in 1971, when he was eight years old, he claimed to have sex with two of his sisters. So everyone is just telling different stories as to what really happened in the household. Not that any of it should be the reason someone turns out to be evil, but nothing is confirmed. Joseph first committed a sex crime when he was 15 years old. 
1978, in Tacoma, Washington, he held a nine-year-old boy at gunpoint and assaulted him. He was sent to juvenile, and then the following year, he was arrested for stealing a car, which resulted in a high-speed chase. Joseph was then sent to Dyslin's Boys Ranch in Tacoma, and it was to help develop these skills for troubled kids so that they can get jobs and become better people. There was a therapist there, and according to the therapist, she said that Joseph had been sexually assaulted by six boys. He also told the therapist that he had sexually assaulted 13 younger boys himself when he was 16 years old. When Joseph was 17 years old, he stole four guns, adult magazines, and a car from his neighbor's house, and then drove to a school where he picked up a 14-year-old boy, forced him in the car, and asked for sexual favors. But when the boy couldn't do what Joseph said, Joseph burned him with cigarettes. Joseph was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but was released on parole in 1994 after serving 14 years. Where the only thing that they warned him about was to stay away from children. Joseph is now 31 years old and lives in a halfway house called the Interaction Transition House in Seattle. And what the website says is that they can assist ex-offenders to adjust from being in prison and they are able to get housing and jobs. In 1996, Joseph got a job at a software company as a technical support representative, where the manager said that he would hire him again if he had to. He got in trouble again for parole violations, possession of marijuana, and possession of a firearm, and was sent back to jail where he was released weeks later. It was also at this time that police believed that he did more than just have marijuana and a gun. They believed that he was responsible for the murders of three children. But we'll get to that part in the end because it soon ends up correlating. Joseph then again violated his probation and was sent back to prison in 1996 and released on July 14, 2000, for good behavior and moved to Fargo, North Dakota. So police had no idea where he went, but once you are a registered sex offender, anywhere you move to, you have to register as a sex offender. So they thought by doing so, they would know exactly where he is. In January 2004, Joseph started a blog post called The Fifth Nail, And the first post he made was, quote, whoever controls the media controls the country, end quote. So we're going to basically go through not all of his blog posts, but things that stuck out to me so that we can have an idea of the, the nonsense, basically, that he's saying. The next blog post that he posted talked about him going back to prison and the recidivism rate. Now, if you don't know what the recidivism rate is, it's how many people have been arrested 
and gone back to and gone to prison once they get out of prison and then they are rearrested and sent back to prison within a certain amount of years maybe like three years you can find the recidivism rate in your own state but in georgia there is a whole website dedicated to it and the recidivism rate in georgia is close to 50 percent and higher than 31 percent joseph's tweet no no not tweet (laughs) the joseph blog post was quote the entire probation and parole system is a farce people are sent back to prison for non-criminal offenses that are counted for recidivism rate to show that everyone that gets out goes back." He said that when he was arrested again in 1996 for possession of a firearm, he tells the story of, quote, "...what happened was my brother brought his gun, which is licensed to conceal carry, and he brought it to my apartment without my knowledge or consent." Throughout the blog post, he posts about his life in detail about when he wakes up and just minute by minute. There's a blog post called Politics and Crime where he says, quote, I can't even find a girlfriend because of the women I like, mature and educated, are terrified when they find out I'm a level three sex offender, which of course I am not. I'm an ex-convict and that's all, end quote. Another blog post is called Ramblings About Reality and Truth and Free Will. He talks about being at McNeil Island State Penitentiary, where he moved into a two-man cell with a known child molester that no one wanted to live with. Joseph said that the guy was everything he hated, and most importantly, he hated him because he loved little girls. He says, quote, The guy was worse than most despicable characters on TV. They can't make characters in a movie this sickening because nobody would ever want to watch. He said that his hate towards the guy was his way of dealing with fear and ignorance, and soon he later realized that, quote, He and I were kin. I'm not saying I'm anything like him or that we are equal, I'm saying I saw for the first time that we are all the same. End quote. Stop lying, Joseph. I'm all for equality, but we are not the same. No, no. No, no. Skipping to 2005, Joseph posted a blog titled Wrestling with Demons, talking about how his demons are stronger than him and that it's a battle between him and his demons. He says, quote, if they win his demons, then a lot of people will be badly hurt and they've had their way before and I know what they can do, end quote. On May 11th, 2005, he wrote a blog post titled, The Demons Have Taken Over, saying that it's too late. Quote, they've locked up the Happy Joe person in the same dungeon that Happy Joe kept them in for so many years, and now they are loose. End quote. He also wrote, quote, To be more specific, I am scared, alone, and confused, and my reaction is to strike out towards the perceived source of my misery, society. 
My intent is to harm society as much as I can, then die. As for me, Happy Joe, or Jet, well, he was just a dream. The boogeyman was alive and happy long before Happy Joe. End quote. That, of course, he thought that the next thing he was going to do, he would get away with it. And the last thing that Joseph mentions was that he has done so much stuff and every single time he has gotten away with it over and over again. So, of course, natural human behavior, you think that the next time that you do something, you're going to get away with it. And that's what Joseph thought. This specific incident that he's talking about getting away with was in March 2005. Joseph was charged with molesting two boys on a playground in Minnesota that occurred on July 3rd, 2004. His bail was set at $15,000 and he skipped bail and disappeared. And on June 1st, 2005, there was a warrant out for his arrest. On May 13th, 2005, the last journal entry Joseph writes is about how he doesn't know if it's the right or wrong thing to take people with him, and that he's writing a more detailed encrypted journal, and maybe in about 30 years when the technology has advanced and they get their hands on it, they can understand why he did what he did. He says, quote, I'm not a bad person. I just have a disease contracted from society, and it hurts a lot, end quote. I'm sorry, what the hell is he talking about? What disease? I don't know. Brenda Groney's two children, nine-year-old Dylan and eight-year-old Shoster, were missing. And an Amber Alert was issued to alert everyone, and they had missing persons flyer as well as billboards posted. Seven weeks later, on July 2nd, 2005, Shasta was seen at a Denny's restaurant with an older man. A waitress called the police saying that there was a little girl and a man here at the restaurant and something seemed wrong. She said, you know, I think the girl looks like Shasta. I can't be 100% sure, but it's worth a shot. The staff blocked the exits, not in an obvious way, of course, but more so in a subtle way. And the staff also made sure that their food was delayed for some time so that they wouldn't eat and then leave right away. An officer showed up and walked up to the booth with the little girl and the older man. And he asked the little girl her name. She looked at the older man and he said, you can tell him. And she responded by saying, Shasta Groni. Police arrested Joseph Duncan, and Shasta was taken to the hospital to get a checkup and to be with her father. When Shasta was found, her brother Dylan wasn't found with her, so it definitely had the police worried, because where could he be? Is he alive? Why did we find Shasta and not Dylan with her? Just a lot of questions going through their mind. The police asked the community for help, and they were able to know the type of vehicle Joseph was driving when he was arrested. He was driving a red Jeep Cherokee with a Missouri license plate that was stolen. 
After Joseph rented the vehicle in Missouri, he never returned it, so of course it's labeled as stolen. A woman that worked at a gas station in Kellogg, Idaho, which is about 36 miles from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, came forward and said that Shasta and Joseph walked into the gas station before they were found in the Denny's. They were walking around in the store and she thought that Shasta looked a lot like the picture that she had been seeing on billboards and posters. But she didn't go up to her and ask her anything because nothing seemed out of the ordinary. It looks like a father and a daughter or an uncle and a niece. So she didn't say anything. Once they left, she looked at the surveillance video and called the police once she realized it was Shasta and Joseph Duncan. Still, even in this video at the gas station, Dylan wasn't with them. When police talked to Shasta because they wanted to know what happened to Dylan and Shasta said, quote, Dylan was no longer with them because he's in heaven with mom and dad, end quote. On July 4th, 2005, investigators found human remains at a remote makeshift campsite at the Lolo National Forest in Missoula County, Montana, which is about a two and a half hour drive from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The remains were sent to the FBI headquarters in Quantico, where they identified the remains as nine-year-old Dylan Groney. Much of how anyone knows what happened is from Shastra telling her story and what she remembers. Shastra said that her mother walked into her room and told them that there was a man in the house that did not want them to be there anymore. They went into the living room where they see Joseph wearing all black and he has black gloves and holding a gun. Mark, the stepdad, was arguing with Joseph, and Joseph said if he kept arguing with him, he was going to shoot him. Joseph bound the mother, the stepdad, and the older brother Slade with nylon zip ties. Shasta and Dylan were taken outside, and he put them in the stolen red Jeep Cherokee. Joseph would go back into the house, and Shasta said that all she heard was screaming coming from inside, and then she saw her older brother Slade running out of the house with blood covering his face. Slade was trying to get his siblings out of the car, and when Joseph reached him, he struck Slade in the head over and over again, and Slade basically got himself to the picnic table not far away, and then fell to the ground. Joseph got in the car and drove away. Shasha said that they were in the car for a pretty long time. They stopped at a few campsites where both Dylan and Shasta were sexually tortured. Shasta said that Joseph would take out all his aggression on Dylan, and she once mentioned that both Dylan and Joseph went to the bathroom and she felt uncomfortable. Joseph told them what he did to their family. He showed them a hammer and said that he beat them to death and that they wouldn't see their family again because they were dead. 
Shasta's survival instincts kicked in, and she started to ask Joseph about his life. Eventually, Joseph became more comfortable around her and became a lot nicer, and she would use that to calm him down whenever he got angry. Eventually, he let them write a letter to their biological father who lived somewhere else. The letter said, quote, Dear Dad, I miss you very much. And me and Dylan know what happened to Mom, Mark, and Slade, and we both feel very sorry for them. And we miss you and Jesse and Vance, and we might see you guys again. End quote. This letter was never sent, so their dad had no idea that they were alive. Shastra then talks about the day that Dylan was murdered. She said she wasn't with Dylan and Joseph, but she heard a loud bang. She went out to find out what the noise was, and she found Dylan lying on the ground with a gunshot wound to his stomach. Joseph then walked up to Dylan and pointed the shotgun to Dylan's head, but the gun didn't go off. Joseph reloaded the gun, and in that span of time, Dylan and Shoster were both begging Joseph not to kill Dylan. Joseph pointed the gun back at Dylan and shot him in the head. According to Shasta, after Joseph killed Dylan, Joseph just started crying because he said it was an accident and that he had to put Dylan out of his misery. Shastra said that nothing came out of her mouth. She just froze. There was nothing she could say after seeing her brother get killed in front of her. Shastra said that a couple of days later, Joseph asked her, quote, how would you like to die? Would you like to be strangled or shot like your brother? Shooting you will be quicker and strangulation will hurt more. End quote. Shasha told Joseph that she wanted to be strangled. As Joseph tied a rope around her neck and as the rope was getting tighter, she was going in and out of consciousness. She was able to yell out, Jet, right away causing him to stop. Jet was a nickname for Joseph that she learned about after getting to know him, and when she called him by his nickname, it was like another person, and he just stopped. Joseph then asked her if she wanted to go and meet his mom, and she said yes, hoping to escape. They would travel back to Coeur d'Alene, and they stopped at a Denny's, and that is where she was rescued from. On July 16, 2005, there was a public memorial service held for Dylan, which would have been his 10th birthday. The other crimes, the ones that I said that we would get back to later because they all correlate, well, Joseph's arrest became nationwide, and the FBI and police looked into more missing children cases that were unsolved, specifically between 1994 to 1997 when Joseph was on parole and from 2000 to 2005 when he was not in prison. And there were three cases that stuck out to the police and FBI. 
The first one was Joseph confessing to the murder of 11-year-old Sammy Jo White and her half-sister, 9-year-old Carmen Kubias, who disappeared on July 6, 1996. Joseph said that on the night he was out getting ice cream and he saw the girls in the back alley and thought he could grab them. So he followed them and then he told the girls that he owns the building and wanted to know what they were doing out there. They thought they were in trouble, so they followed him into his car and he took them to an abandoned barn, tried to sexually assault them, but he couldn't and then killed them instead. The next day, he sexually assaulted the bodies, then dismembered one of them and buried them. Their skeletal remains were found on February 10th, 1998, in Bothell, Washington, and Joseph said that he beat the girls to death. Joseph also confessed to the murder of 10-year-old Anthony Martinez. On April 4th, 1997, Anthony was playing cards with his friends in his front yard in Beaumont, California, when a random man approached the group, asking for help in finding his missing cat. The boys refused to help the stranger, and then Joseph grabbed Anthony and held him at gunpoint and put him in his vehicle. After a two-week search, Anthony's nude body was found in Indio, California on April 19, 1997. Police said that he was bound with duct tape and sexually assaulted. They were able to create a composite sketch of the man and found a partial fingerprint on the duct tape, but the case went cold. And when you look at the composite sketch side by side, it's the first composite sketch that I've seen where it's so... They're literally twins. They The composite sketch compared to Joseph looked way too similar. In July 2005, people started to notice the similarities of the sketch to Joseph Duncan, as well as the vehicle that was used to kidnap Anthony Martinez. The FBI and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got involved and put two and two together. They were able to match the fingerprint found on the duct tape to Joseph Duncan, and on August 3rd, 2005, the Riverside County Sheriff in California announced Joseph's connection to the case. FBI agents said that when they went to question Joseph about the murder of Anthony Martinez on July 19, 2005, Joseph's response was, quote, Revenge against society again for sending him back to jail for a probation violation, end quote. That, that was his reason. Absolutely crazy. In Idaho District Court, Joseph was being tried for the kidnapping and murder of Slade Brenda Groney. In Idaho District Court, Joseph was being tried for the kidnapping and murder of Slade and Brenda Groney and Mark McKenzie. The United States District Court of Idaho charged him with the kidnapping of Shasta and Dylan and the murder of Dylan Groney. And in California, he was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Anthony Martinez. On July 13, 2005, Joseph appeared in court 
where he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping for Slade and Brenda Groney and Mark McKenzie. Even though Shasta and Dylan were both kidnapped in Idaho and Joseph was originally charged with their kidnapping, they decided to let the federal courts handle that because kidnapping a child and bringing them across state lines for sexual exploitation is a federal crime. The original trial date was set for January 17, 2006, but was delayed by four months because the district judge allowed the defense more time to prepare. And then it was set to start on April 4th and then was pushed back until April 26, when it actually started. Joseph would plead guilty to all charges against him in a plea bargain. He was sentenced right away to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole for Slade and Brenda Groney and Mark McKenzie. For the federal trial, Joseph was indicted on 10 counts in the federal court. There were kidnapping, kidnapping resulting in death, aggravated sex abuse to a minor, sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death, illegal firearm possession, and vehicle theft. On December 3, 2007, Joseph pleaded guilty to all 10 counts. Jury selection for the federal trial began on April 14, 2008. On August 27, 2008, after three hours of deliberation, the jury recommended the death penalty. The judge imposed three death sentences for kidnapping resulting in death, sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death, and the use of a firearm in a violent crime resulting in death. And all these charges were related to Dylan Groney. On November 3, 2008, Joseph was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without parole in a federal prison for both Shasta and Dylan. In September 2012, Joseph began serving his time at the United States Penitentiary, Terry Hot in Indiana. While in prison, he was diagnosed with pedophilia, or pedophilia, I struggle to say that word, sadistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and narcissistic traits. In California, on January 18, 2007, the Riverside County officials charged Joseph Duncan for the murder of Anthony Martinez. They tried to extradite Joseph to California, but his federal trial was happening. So, on January 24, 2009, Joseph was extradited after being sentenced to death by the federal court. On March 15, 2011, Joseph pleaded guilty to the murder of Anthony Martinez and was sentenced to two life terms on April 5, 2011. A part of his plea deal, if he pleaded guilty, was that he couldn't appeal his sentence and his sentence came without the possibility of parole. In California, Joseph could have gotten the death penalty, but the district attorney said that he talked with the Martinez family and all they wanted was closure, and that, quote, the federal system will kill him long before the state of California would have seriously considered it, end quote. After the trials, the jurors were given counseling because 
it's quite hard to move on with their life and act as if nothing happened after seeing such a horrific crime scene. There was a 33-minute video of Duncan and Dylan, and that is as much as I'm going to say because it's heartbreaking to cover a case like this and to know that a child's last moments alive were torture. In 2010, he still continued his blog posts. It was believed that he was talking to someone through letters, telling them what to write and that there is nothing behind the entries and he just wants people to really know who he is and the whole mind of a serial killer thing. The things that he thinks about and people have to know why he did the things he did. And even if people did know about the things he did, it will never make sense as to why he did the things he did. It is also believed that he gave police the code to his encrypted journal in one of the plea bargains, but that's as much as we know. We don't know if that was an actual thing. We don't know if they actually gave him the encrypted journal and they just haven't released it to the public, but that's all that is mentioned about the encrypted journal. When Shastra was 10 years old, the community built a home for her and her father after her father said that they were homeless and had no money and he was left to raise his daughter. When Shastra was 17 years old, she was arrested and sent to juvenile for a year after being charged with two misdemeanor charges with drugs and pleaded guilty. Shastra said that she turned to drugs and alcohol to deal with everything that she went through, but she wanted to change her life. Shastra said that it was hard for her because everyone knew her as the girl that survived a kidnapping and everything else that happened. Everyone was fascinated by the story, and when they would talk about it, she was left to relive it constantly, and all she wanted to do was live a normal life. Shastra got engaged and became pregnant, and she considered her baby a miracle baby because with all the sexual assault that happened to her, she didn't think it was possible to have a baby. Shasha said that she celebrates all of her family's birthdays and tries to remember the good, happy memories. She wrote something that she would tell Joseph if she got a chance to see him again. She would say, quote, I'd want him to know that he doesn't control me and he doesn't control how I feel. The person who took away my family and my innocence, but I don't ever really think about him. It's just my family. And I want him to know he doesn't have any power right now because he's the one sitting in prison while I'm out living my life. End quote. One of Joseph's requests was for Shasta to see him when she got older, and she has considered the idea. In 2016, when Shasta was 19 years old, she created a petition called Slade and Dylan's Law. Is for convicted sex offenders to not be let out of jail, and this would make the three-strike rule for violent sex offenders be reduced to one. So instead of committing crimes and going to prison, being let out, and doing it for the third time, which is too many chances, the first time they commit a violent crime, 
they would be sentenced to prison. No more chances after that. Two years later, Shastra and her father were evicted from the house that the community built for them because Shastra wasn't living in the house. Only her father was. The community wanted to support Shastra with her new home, and they couldn't afford the two houses, so they would have to sell the first house in order to have money to help Shastra. In 2018, Shastra pleaded guilty to two misdemeanor counts of injury to a child, and this was because she had left drugs around her two children. She wasn't given prison time, just probation, and violated them and was then given supervised probation. She got a full-time job and her drug tests were coming back clean. February 2019, Shasta is now 22 years old. She and her two sons, who are two and one years old, would go missing. But they were found the next evening and no one knows what happened, but that is all the information on that part. In December 2019, Steve, her father, passed away after battling cancer. Shasta called her father a hero, and he always talked about seeing his sons Dylan and Slade in heaven one day, and now he got to. And that is the last update on Shasta. In October 2020, Joseph Duncan had brain surgery after being diagnosed with glioblastoma, one of the most aggressive forms of brain cancer. It was reported that he declined any medical treatment such as chemotherapy and radiation therapy. The medical staff at the prison estimated that he had about 6 to 12 months left to live, and on March 28, 2021, Joseph Duncan died at the age of 58 from glioblastoma and was cremated. End of episode thoughts. Wow. This case was a tough one to research. And if it sounded like my voice was shaky throughout recording it, it was. I had to take so many breaks from researching this case because it's never easy listening and researching something that cr- that gruesome. And at first I didn't want to talk about this case because so many of us that aren't evil and have a soft spot for children, it's impossible. It's just heartbreaking to hear about those things. And it's like impossible for me to look at a child and want to hurt them. Like all I want to do is watch Peppa Pig with kids, you know, but by covering this case, I knew that I was able to talk about Shastra's story and the strength she has, I can never imagine being in that position and knowing that you're never going to see your family again, being kidnapped by a serial killer and choosing how you want to die and having your survival instincts kick in to save your own life. It takes a lot of strength and, oh, my voice is shaky. It breaks my heart knowing that Shastra has endured all that she went through, and I wish her peace and a happy life. She's such a strong and brave person, and I wish her nothing but the best in life. And that is the end of today's story. I would love to know what you guys think. 
Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at Criminal Curiosity Pod, where you can see the pictures of the case. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and rating because it helps me out so much. Spotify now has ratings, so all you have to do is type in Criminal Curiosity and you'll see a little star to leave a rating. It would be very helpful and appreciated. You can also request any cases that you have through Instagram or Gmail, which I will have in the description box. And please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.